Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh. I'm joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? I'm great, David. It's February 1st, so although it's the middle of winter, there are hints of spring. One can one can think about spring now. It's, it's a bit brighter in the morning. It's a bit, uh, it's not getting dark quite so early, so I'm, I'm doing fine. Hint, hints of spring. Well, spring makes me think of baseball, and that's our topic for today ah. because last week the baseball hall of fame uh, announced the uh, elections uh, for the new class of people going into the hall of fame and the new class includes nobody because nobody got elected uh, to the baseball hall of fame this year despite some uh, really extraordinary players on the ballot uh, including uh, barry bonds the all-time home run leader uh, roger clemens one of the best pitchers in the 20th century uh, and kurt schilling um who is not as good as Clemens, but but still a very good player who many people suspected uh, might make it into the Hall of Fame. Uh, so we thought we'd talk today about uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame, the politics of, of who gets in and who doesn't get in. Um, and for those people who are not baseball fans, we're going to try to connect this to some some bigger bigger themes in American history that go uh, above and beyond uh, the the inside baseball, if you will, of Hall of Fame elections. So, so David, what you're saying is we are two middle-aged white American guys talking about a sport that's really increasingly watched by a dwindling number of middle-aged American white guys <laughs> <laughs> and uh, on a podcast. So this is, uh, yeah, anyway, okay. I just want to be clear about what we're doing we, we, today. We got, well, we, we got to play into our strengths here, Frank. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's actually that, you know, uh, just speaking, it's actually the history of baseball is one of, the, one of the things that first got me interested in base in history as a discipline. Uh, me too. So, uh, you know, learning about the, the intricacies of 19th century, uh, you know, the players league and then like the federal league and all these kinds of things got me very interested. So baseball hall of fame. Um, do you want to tell the origin story, Frank, of the baseball hall of fame or, or don't want me to do that? Well, I think it's it's better suited to you because it's rooted in a kind of imagined history that's that that comes from your period, the 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 mid nineteenth century. Uh, so the, all the, right. the baseball anyway, yeah, you take okay, it away. Okay, so 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 the the origin story of the the baseball Hall of Fame, uh, which is located in Cooperstown, New York, and you may want to talk about uh, Cooperstown uh, in a minute because I know you have some uh, expertise on that. Uh, Baseball Hall of Fame was established in the 1930s. They first uh, they elect their first class in 1936. The building itself, the museum, opens in 1939. Uh, and it is opened uh, to correspond with what they believe to be the 100th anniversary of the invention of baseball in Cooperstown, New York. Uh, turns out baseball wasn't 100 years old and it was much older than that. It wasn't invented in Cooperstown, New York. Uh, but the origin story uh, was the baseball was invented by uh, a man named Abner Doubleday, uh, supposedly in the 1830s. Uh, Doubleday uh, now is best known as the person who didn't invent baseball, um, although he is his name is given to the the field in, in Cooperstown. Uh, during his life, he was best known as a Civil War hero. He was uh, the second in command at Fort Sumter after Robert Anderson. He goes on to participate in a number of uh, major engagements in the Civil War and was a Civil War hero. 
Uh, and so when they were trying to figure out the origins of baseball, somebody came forward and said it was Abner Doubleday, this great American hero. Uh, and that seemed like a very good origin story. Uh, turns out there's uh, no sort of factual basis for it. He was at West Point supposedly during the time that uh, he was in Cooperstown inventing the game. So, so yeah, I mean, David, thanks for that. I mean, Doubleday is an interesting character to me. Uh, you're quite right. He did not invent baseball. No single person invented baseball, but all, you know, all, all sort of stories need a foundation point, right? It, it needs a creation myth. And this is the creation myth for, for baseball. And it's as good as any other, I suppose. I mean, there's a history of bat and ball games going back hundreds and hundreds of years, um, both in Britain and in, in colonial America among European settlers and indeed among indigenous peoples. Um, so so the, the, the history, the roots of baseball are, uh, go back way beyond uh, our Abner Doubleday, but he's as good a place as any to start. And, and as you know, you've been to Cooperstown, right? Cooperstown's mm, oh, Yes. It's a beautiful place to visit. It's a nice place. So if you gotta if you gotta make something up, it's a it's as good a place as any. And so this imagines uh centenary of 1839, uh, or the 1939 centenary uh commemorating the 1839 invention of baseball, I guess it works fine. You know, I mean I think it's interesting that even in the in your period in the 1830s and 40s, there's a kind of idealized imagined past. Mm. And, and, and that's what I think the double day myth taps into. And, oh, I, and yeah, go ahead. Oh, definitely. I mean, the other sort of motivation locally is, is that this was a community that was devastated by the actually first by prohibition. There had been some breweries there had shut down and then by the great depression. And so they were hoping very much this museum would, 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 create a, a new industry for Cooperstown. And, and it definitely has, because there's a, a booming, uh, you, know, a ready, you know, steady stream of tourists, at least in non-pandemic times, to Cooperstown to see, see the museum. So it's, it, that, that well, definitely worked. Yeah, and, and I think that's an interesting part of this, David, because right today, and we'll, we're going to talk about the, the modern mm. Hall of Fame and its place in American culture and, and uh, its significance, I guess. But, you know, at the time, it's got resonances to me, and, and, you know, because it's taken on this almost quasi-religious um, aspect now, and it, it's certainly got a place in America's civic religion. Uh, but you know, when it's founded, halls of fame are a little bit like carnivals and freak shows in the 19th and early 20th centuries. They're 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 a they're a, an attraction to get people in. Um, to spend money, really. And, and so I think we've forgotten those origins. And I'm glad you, you reminded us of that or reminded me of that, because I think although it's taken on this tone since then and people speak in reverential tones, you know, when it was set up, it was a local attraction, right? Oh, to be sure. Uh, right. So, uh, you know, they have this first uh, election uh, of, of, of people to the Hall of Fame in 1936. And one of the interesting things is that the, the, the mechanisms for getting into the Hall of Fame haven't changed significantly since then there's basically two routes into the hall of fame there's the sort of the main route uh is is you get elected by the uh baseball writers of of uh of america baseball writers association of america uh and they have a ballot uh the ballot in order to get in you have to have played for 10 years to be on the ballot you have to have been retired for five there have been exceptions to both of those rules. Um, 
Addy Joss, who only played for nine years, got in because he died of meningitis. Uh, if you die within uh, before your five years uh, window of up, you, you can get in. So Roberto Clemente got in before five years. Um, and Lou Gehrig. And, yes. Um, there's usually at the end up with a ballot of, of 25 to 40 players. The writers get to vote for as many as 10 people. Uh, there's currently about 400 voters. Um, and if you get 75% of the vote, then you're in uh, into the Hall of Fame. Uh, and you have a window about how long you get to stay on the ballot. That's sort of the main route. There's another route called the Veterans uh, Committee, uh, which has changed more over the, the, the past 75 years. Uh, but that was originally designed to get 19th century players, and now it does a bunch of things. It gets players that have gotten missed. It also gets um, Negro League players. They elect managers that way and umpires. Um, there's been 300-something people elected to the Hall of Fame uh, thus far. Uh, most of them are players, but they've also included uh, 23 managers, uh, 10 umpires, and 36, quote-unquote, pioneers. Um, so it's still a pretty el elite group of people uh, who've gotten into Hall of Fame. It's considered you know, the, the foremost honor of, of a player's career to uh, get elected. Yeah, it's it's worth observing, David, that actually the standard for admission to the Hall of Fame is actually higher than the uh, standard for removal of a president of the United States by <laughs> impeachment, which requires only a 67 percent vote. So, <laughs> um, so it, it's a tough standard to meet. I think it's interesting. I think the I don't know what you think of the standards, but I think they're uh, I think having to wait in normal circumstances, five years before you vote on somebody makes sense. So you get to see somebody in some historical pers perspective and, and it gets rid of some recency bias, mm. hopefully. Um, one thing that's quite clear if you read about this in any detail is the voters take it very, very seriously. At least those in the, you know, the baseball writers who vote see, see just being able to vote because they have to have been members of the Baseball Writers Association for a certain amount of time before they're allowed to vote. It's not, it's not a, the, the franchise is not open to all baseball writers. Um, uh, they take it quite seriously and they see, see it as an honor and see themselves as playing an important role. Uh, it, I think, I don't know about you, I think the system works pretty well. In general, I think the writers have a higher standard than the Veterans Committee. The former players tend to vote for their pals. Uh, and, and of the more egregious, and by egregious now, I'm not talking about in terms of character. We'll get to that in a second. Mm. I'm talking about the kind of the people who've been let in who might not be true greats, but maybe very good. You know, I think the, the, the poorer decisions that have been made in terms of admitting people to the Hall of Fame have been more often made by the Veterans Committee than by the writers. I don't know what you think about that. Oh, I, I think that's generally the case there's a, a bunch of examples of people that the the veterans committee have have led in um whose numbers don't seem to reflect hall of fame status um you know and, and phil rizzuto who i think was amazing as a broadcaster was a thoroughly slightly above average player he's in the hall of fame um you know jim bunning goes on to be in congress and Maybe that's why he ended up in the Hall of Fame. There's a bunch of other, uh, Tony Lazari, um, Ted Lyons, other kinds of people who are in the Hall of Fame who don't 
necessarily uh, sort of meet the usual rubrics. And there's there's some traditionally been some fairly clear standards about you know what kinds of milestones a player has to reach in order to be in the Hall of Fame, whether that's three thousand hits or five hundred home runs or three hundred wins or, or three thousand strikeouts or something. I mean, they, they usually are fairly clear. Uh, sort of standards for for people to get in and many of the players who there's been as you point out a handful of people mostly in the veterans committee who seem like very odd choices but crucially david um i think it is worth bearing in mind that it's not just a series of statistical measures that determine mm. whether somebody gets in i mean the reason there is an election and the reason that there, we had that these two committees exist is there's a recognition at some level that the numbers alone aren't sufficient, that the numbers are usually uh, the point of departure, but there is a degree of uh, judgment that has to be exercised in deciding who's worthy of this, um, what oh, is definitely. evolved into the greatest honor that baseball can bestow on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a player. Right. And, and I think this, yeah. And this ahead. is where the controversy comes in um, because there are lots of, or not lots, there are, several very notable ex people who are extraordinary players who have are not in the hall of fame um, who have been excluded for one reason or another. And I think that sort of speaks to this particular election where, where nobody got in. Uh, and, you know, they all come down to, to this, the, the rubric that's given to the, the voters and it's one that's been given to the voters, um, you know, ever since the, the beginning of, of the Hall of Fame and, and that one of the criteria is about integrity, sportsmanship and character uh, and that players should be voted in uh, who meet those criteria, which has meant that a handful of players have not gotten in specifically because of that uh, and sort of the big examples uh, before the sort of current era are truest Joe Jackson uh, who was banned for baseball for life after his participation in the 1919 Black Sox scandal, uh, and Pete Rose, uh, who uh, was also uh, accepted a, a ban from baseball uh, for uh, betting on his own team. Yeah, so he bet on baseball while he was managing the Cincinnati Reds. Including betting on the Reds. Uh, yes. I think he bet on the Reds to win, if I remember correctly. He admitted whatever it is in his autobiography. That's right. Well, there's no, there's, well, there's incontrovertible evidence that he was betting on baseball. Mm. There's no evidence to suggest that he was betting against his own team. Team, right. Uh, with Joe but Jackson. But the rules, the rules are quite clear. The, you know, the, the one rule, and this is one, this is one way that sport in, in North America differs from sport in, in Britain, for example. The rules are quite clear in prohibiting players at all levels of baseball from engaging in, in gambling. That's right. It's, it's posted on the wall of every clubhouse. That's right. Um, so, you know, in, in recent years, there have been debates about the merits of, of including players who use steroids, um, which obviously was a large number of players in the, the 1990s, especially um, uh, in the early 2000s. Um, and many of those players have, have been excluded from the Hall of Fame, including uh, Barry Bonds, the all-time home run leader, Sammy Sosa, um, and, uh, and Roger Clemens and others. So, so how do we sort of make sense of this, this standard, Frank? Do you, what, do you, what are your thoughts and feelings about, about, about Joe Jackson and Pete Rose and, and then the, the steroid guys? Well, huh. 
I mean, Joe Jackson and Pete Rose have been out for so long that I kind of, I, I think that it makes sense. Um, you know, they both broke the rule, the unbreakable rule, which is you're not allowed to gamble on baseball. Mm. Right. And now there are, we know, and you know, this probably better than me because it falls into your period mm. in the late 19th century. There are loads of guys who are, who are betting on baseball and there are loads of betting scandals around baseball. And some of those guys are in the hall of fame. But Jackson and Rose were both uh, both identified in probably the two most notorious betting scandals in the history of the game, that associated with the 1919 uh, World Series and Pete Rose's career subsequently um, in, in the 80s uh, as a manager. And uh, the evidence seems pretty clear. And, and they are out for breaking the rule that is clear. It's stated at the beginning, you know, from the very foundations of the game, you can't do this. So I think mm. I think it's even though Pete Rose is the all time hits leader and um, and uh, Joe Jackson was one of the great players of his era and likely would have been in, if he wouldn't have been in the inaugural class in 1936, he probably would have elected soon soon after. Them's the rules. And, and so, so I, I have no problem with with their exclusion. Uh, Pete Rose has shown no contrition. You know, there were there have been several points over the past 25 or 30 years where various uh, commissioners of baseball have kind of tried to reach out to Rose and said, look, if you just say you're sorry, you know, acknowledge what you did and throw mm. yourself on the mercy of the court, you know, the metaphorically speaking, you know, there's a way back for you. He's been unwilling and unable to do that. So I, I think the exclusion of Pete Rose and Joe Jackson um, is, is fine. Uh, as for the steroid, well, anyway, I, I think the steroid guys are slightly different, but I, I what do you think of Jackson and Rose? Well, here's the interesting thing thinking about this, this, you know, this clause in, in, in the metric, if you got to pick your own, you know, I'm just thinking here about the, the players who are not in the hall of fame, who, who are extraordinary players. And I think about the people who are in the Hall of Fame, some of whom are not so great. And I was going to pick a team uh, uh, of the best non-play people who are not in the Hall of Fame versus the worst people who are in the Hall of Fame. I think the people who are not in the Hall of Fame team would win pretty decisively because um, there's some really great players. And I guess whether is the Hall of Fame supposed to recognize great players or moderately decent people? Um you know, and, and Pete Rose seems like a jerk. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, he was an extraordinary player. Joe Jackson, um, you know, was involved in the Black Sox scandal. There have been debates about the extent to which he actually participated in throwing the World Series. He actually played really well in the, in the 1919 World Series. So, you know, if he was throwing the game, if he was throwing the series, he did it in a very weird way. Um, and I, I, I guess I have some problems with, with this whole clause, um, in part because, you know, there are lots of people in the hall of fame and I want to, we can talk about some of them who are legitimately horrible people, um, violent people, racist people, um, people who 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 are um at least don't fit my standard of integrity or or character um and did things which in my mind are worse than betting on baseball um 
And so I can envision, you know, like what is the value of a Hall of Fame that ex- that doesn't have the all-time hits leader and doesn't have the all-time home runs leader, um, and and doesn't arguably have the best pitcher of the second half of the 20th century in it because because but does have these other people in it who are 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 of, of a very um questionable uh, to put it mildly uh, moral character uh and it's hard for me to reconcile those two things because i think part of what we have is a very changing definition of what uh integrity and character are you know when they excluded joe jackson uh from baseball they thought betting on baseball was the worst thing that one could possibly do but they thought racism was entirely okay you know the the commissioner of baseball when the hall of fame is founded is kennesaw mountain landis who actively you know uh refused to to allow black players to to play in the, the major leagues um, and there are lots of, of pretty egregious racists who are in the Hall of Fame who, who, who use their positions of power to uh, keep African-Americans uh, out of baseball. Uh, you know, Cap Anson, who's in the Hall of Fame, is one of the people responsible for segregating baseball in the first place uh, because he, as a player and as a manager, refused to have his team play against other teams that had African-Americans in them. And there were you know, African-Americans who played in Major League Baseball in the 19th century until Cap Anson forced them out, uh, you know. And so uh, Roger Hornsby, who was a Hall of Fame extraordinary player, was also a member of the Klan and discriminated against Catholic players. Um, to me, that's worse than anything Joe Jackson did. No, I agree with you on that, David. But I, so are you, are you suggesting a kind of purge of the Hall of Fame? Well, I mean, I think I think we're at a point now with there's so many really extraordinary players who are excluded. I think we're at a sort of a in order to make the gate the, the Hall of Fame seem legitimate, you either need to purge the people who are in it, which seems kind of weird on one some level, or we just say like this is for the best players some of whom were morally um, questionable, but we're judging them based on the things they did on the field, not the things they did off the field. Right, but I'm sorry. I actually think there, there are two, two things at work here with the, with the character clause. Mm. One is the kind of people we've been talking about in the earlier period. Um, and again, I'm not defending Cap Amson or Ty mm. Cobb or Marshall Hornsby or any of the, of the racists. Um, who have been voted in, you know what? Most people don't know who they are. <laughs> Even a lot of baseball fans don't know who they are. Uh, what, if, if we know one thing is, uh, you know, fame is fleeting. It may be mm. called the Hall of Fame. It's, it's the Hall of Fame. It's not really immortality. Joe Jackson's probably better known for it because he's not in the Hall of Fame than he would have been if he'd been elected in 1937 and was just forgotten. So so I'm not sure. I'm not sure what we do about people who, who are in, who are dead. I don't, I don't know what, the, what, what point it would serve to kind of go back and, and, and apply a calculus retrospectively. Um, 
the one thing I would say, though, is I think there is a difference between, again, with Jackson and Rose, they bet on the game. They, they knew at the time, we're back to, okay, standards of the time. The standard was quite clear in their time hmm. not to be involved in that. So, so it seems to me that's quite clear. Then there's the question of cheating and what you do about cheating and the steroid guys more recently. But I want to, before we get to them, just acknowledge that baseball has a very odd relationship with cheating anyway and the concept of cheating. Hmm. Because there are people who've bent the rules for years, decades, going back to the 19th century as well. And there's a sort of, uh, whether it's doctoring the ball, for example, who are in the Hall of Fame. Whitey Ford, who died last year, we lost 10 Hall of Famers in the last year, most recently Hank Aaron. Um, you know, so the, the, you know, Whitey Ford, one of the great pictures of the, of the mid 20th century, the cornerstone of that, gr probably the greatest dynasty, the greatest Yankee dynasty uh, of, of, of all time in that mid 20th century. Whitey Ford doctored the ball and he acknowledged such, and he's not alone in that. Now, in retrospect, we see that as kind of uh, charming and scampish and that's okay. So that's a kind of acceptable level of cheating. Sign stealing, we've had the scandal around the Houston Astros um, in, in the past couple of years. And, mm. and, and, and it must be said to a lesser extent, the Boston Red Sox. Um, but sign stealing at one level is okay. It's a bit like card counting in a, in a casino. It's against the rules, but if you can do it and get away with it, good luck to you. But then if you use technology as the Astros or Alexa have done, then it's unacceptable. So there are, there's a fluid standard about cheating. And I think that the, the steroid users have been sort of set aside in, in that debate and sort of said, no, 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 that's beyond the pale. We can't have that. And that's why Bonds and Clemens to this, to, to, to uh, at least down to the most recent uh, results have been excluded from the Hall of Fame, despite their clear credentials as Hall of Famers. I mean, based on what they did on the field, there's no question about those two. Mm. Um, and, and the steroid users, I think, have been seen in a different category. And maybe that should be so. But they, they've been seen as, a, although there's a level of cheating that's kind of tolerated and indeed encouraged within the game, um, I think if it's cheating within the game, as it were, uh, the steroid users are seen as beyond that. And I yeah. think that's interesting and it raises other character questions. Um, so I don't know, I, I would make a distinction. Sorry, that's a long-winded yeah. way of saying it. I'd make a distinction between Joe Jackson and Pete Rose and the steroid users yeah. i'd also make a distinction between the steroid users and the people who cheat within the culture of the game if that makes sense i don't know whether they I, i'm not articulating this very well but that, that's, yeah would you, would you agree with that distinction it's an interesting distinction um and i think there's some merit to it i would also just to sort of add that you know in terms of performance enhancing drugs are nothing new to baseball that that no that you know the the YD4 generation um, and and subsequent to it used tons of amphetamines. I mean, all the players in the 1960s were, um, and or at least a large number of them were. Yeah, if you read uh, ball four. Yeah, uh, so they all seem to be hopped up on something. Is that qualitatively different than using steroids? If everybody's using it, I don't really know whether the, the pharmacological advances of the, you know, 
20th century, you know, matter that much. I mean, uh, so I think I'm with you that, 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 that there's a difference uh, of there's different kinds of cheating that, that would make one ineligible. You know, one of the differences about how the, the voters have dealt with this, you know, is if you look at the ballots, uh, you know, there, there, there are lots of people who are voting for, for Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. Um, that they're on the ballot and just not making it because some voters are making that choice for themselves. At least, uh, you know, uh, 40% of them are not voting for uh, Bonds and Clemens. Um, whereas right, Pete they, Rose they was never on the ballot. They each had around 60% in the, yeah. in the most recent ballot. Right. But Pete, again, I've got no problem excluding Pete Rose. He broke the, the, he broke the cardinal rule of the game that they're taught from the outset. I think Pete Rose, I think mm. Pete Rose is Lucifer. He's the fallen angel. He doesn't, you know, he, he, he did what he did. And he's, he, as I said, his total lack of contrition is, is a problem too. Yeah. Um, so, so, so I, uh, whereas, so, and you're right about the use of amphetamines, for example, in the 60s and 70s. And, uh, you know, there are loads of memoirs by former players and interviews of players. And you know, so we mm. know this. There is a slight difference, I would say, between the use of amphetamines and the use of steroids. <laughs> and I'm about to demonstrate my ignorance of both. But the, the amphetamine use, if you read Jim Booten's memoir, Ball Four, which I would recommend to anybody. It's, it's, it's an excellent it's, book. It's a great book about playing his his experience playing for the Yankees in the late 60s. He was talking about, you know, players are taking amphetamines. You know, the, the, the players in the 1960s and 70s weren't coddled the way they were today in terms of the travel restricted, the way that the travel conditions, the, the playing conditions, the locker rooms, etc. According to the way Booten and others have told the story, players were on speed to get through a 162 game season in six months. Um, you know, just, just to be able to do it. I think steroids and the impact of steroids were different in the sense that there was a fear at the time, well, not immediately, but, but as the steroid era unfolded, that players were almost distorting and breaking the game by doing this. Mm. So, you know, the home run record, you know, we just talk, I mentioned a minute ago, the Henry Aaron, the recent, um, who was the home run king when he died, uh, sorry, when, when he retired, uh, you know, he was passed by Barry Bonds and Barry Bonds had absurd batting statistics in the 1990s hmm. uh, uh, that kind of distorted what baseball had been and would become. And so I think that I think steroids could be seen as qualitatively different in their impact on the game itself and the game as an institution. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, but I mean, uh, um, I, mean, I guess the ubiquity of steroids then, uh, you know, if, if the players were hitting the ball further uh, and, and, uh, and more frequently out of the park, um, you know, the pitchers were throwing harder too. Um, and so, in, you know, some people who, who took steroids during that era defended their usage saying, look, everybody else was, if I wasn't yeah. doing this, I'd be at a disadvantage. Um, and there's, um, I don't want to say there, there's merit to that argument because because it's still you know in, in violation of the rules, but it sort of helps to explain some of the, some of the behavior. Um, so, would you let the steroid users in? I, I would. Um, I mean, I, I I think baseball during the the time uh, said steroid usage was against the rules, but it also 
winked and nodded about it at the same time. Um, I mean, everybody knew that, rules. Yeah, I mean, everyone knew that that Bonds was using steroids. Um, that was, you know, if you if simply if you sort of look at uh, photos of him from when he came up with the Pirates to sort of the second half of his career with the Giants, um, you know, that his usage was obvious. Um, and, and I think the same was true for, for many of the, the other players that, that used steroids. I think their, their usage was, was fairly obvious. Um, and, and baseball benefited from that. Uh, you know, people went to the ballpark, you know, there, there were the attendance records were set during the steroid era because people wanted to see lots of home runs. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's only after uh, sort of many of these players were at the very end of their career or retired that that baseball just sort of decided to sort of back away from from steroid usage. Um, I would I, I agree with you on that. I've kind of undergone a change on this. I'd say mm. for most of the past 15 or 20 years, I've thought, no, they should be out. And now. I've done a 180 on this. I think a couple of things. I, I agree with what you've just said. I think we'll never know who definitively who was using and who wasn't from that era. And therefore, undoubtedly, there are already people who are steroid users who've been admitted in recent years. Yeah, um, Mike Piazza is widely accused of being a, a steroid user and he's in the Hall of Fame. Although that's a problem, that in and of that very formulation, widely accused, widely mm. believed. You know, we don't have the evidence, and, and it's 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 a little bit unfair. So we have definitive proof mm. against players, but not others. I don't think we'll ever be able to sort that out. The other thing is, it's the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. It's a museum. That's basically what it is, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and you know, it, it, so. I, I think you can't ignore that era of baseball. There's a period of, say, from, I don't know, 1985 to 2005, maybe 2010, when steroid use was rife. We can't ignore that. That's a significant proportion of the history of the game. So I think that is an issue. The other thing is, I think you put it on their plaque if they were convicted, you know, if they were suspended for steroid use. You know, every player gets a plaque in the Hall of Fame. You could put that on, you could put that on the plaque. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens next year, because mm. next year's vote, we have two players. We, we have Bonds and Clemens have their last year of eligibility uh, with the writers that, that will expire. Their 10 years will expire and then they'll go to the veterans committee in a few years time. But it's the first year of eligibility for two of the most famous players of the recent past, Alex Rodriguez and David Ortiz. Alex Rodriguez is such an egregious user of steroids. He's now Mr. Jennifer Lopez, but before that, he was a pretty good baseball player. Uh, <laughs> Alex, Alex Rodriguez was such a notorious steroid user. He was suspended for a year. The evidence against Alex Rodriguez is incontrovertible. He was hmm. suspended in 2014 for an entire season for steroid use. So there's no, there's no question about him. But David Ortiz is interesting because he's in that Mike Piazza category in the sense that people just say it. He was, his name was leaked in 2003 in a report that the New York Times got its hands on, but the players who were named in that report were guaranteed anonymity and the evidence mm. against them isn't actually all that clear. I think it's likely given the era in which he played and the numbers he produced that David Ortiz used steroids, but that's just me. Yeah, I don't have any proof of that, but the difference is, sorry, let me finish. 
David Ortiz was popular and beloved, not just in New England, but but more generally. David Ortiz is David Ortiz is an interesting test case because he's a likable steroid user. Mm. Harry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Alex Rodriguez, these are people that basically aren't very popular and they're easy for writers to vote against and they weren't nice to writers. David Ortiz is gonna is gonna pose a different kind of challenge, both for the public and the voters, because a lot of them like him. Yeah, no, I think the the one of the things that is clear is that that being friendly to the voters is something that that uh, to to the, which are the journalists, the writers, uh, has played a pretty significant role in who gets in and who doesn't. And I think part of the strikes against Bonds is that he was notoriously hostile to to baseball writers. That's right. Whereas Ozzie Smith, who was an extraordinary shortstop arguably the best defensive player in that position, uh, or, or at least in the top two or three, you know, is in the hall of fame, but his batting numbers are thoroughly mediocre and his team didn't always do all that well, except for, for one season. Um, you know, does he belong there? Who knows? Um, but he was very popular with the fans and he was very popular with the writers and he was very charismatic. Um, and that probably helped him, uh, meet the threshold. Um, and he did backflips. And he did backflips the beginning of every season, uh, which, you know, looked really cool, but doesn't, you know, um, you know, and the writers hold grudges and the writers, you know, are, have, have prejudices. You know, when we think about uh, Jackie Robinson, for instance, who, you know, if anybody deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, Jackie Robinson did, does. Do you know what percentage he got when he, when he got voted in? It was 77.5%, which means that almost a quarter of the writers didn't think he should be in there when he was on the ballot. That, that I think, you know, says to me about sort of how, how uh, political uh, and, and personal some of these votes can be. The other person, Frank, who was on the, uh, didn't make into the Hall of Fame this year that, that has caused a lot of, of controversy uh, and and speaking as a as a Red Sox fan, I want you to to weigh in on this, uh, and that is Kurt Schilling. Oh God! <laughs> uh, now now, tell me, Frank, wh- wh- what's the case for and against Kurt Schilling being the hall being in the Hall of Fame? David, you can't see me right now, but I just put my head down on the desk. <laughs> um. The case for Kurt Schilling is that he was a very, very good pitcher throughout a, a lengthy career, um, but he was an outstanding pitcher in the postseason. Um, so in, in both the playoffs and the World Series, both for um, particularly for the Arizona Diamondbacks and and then later for the Red Sox. So Kurt Schilling played a key role in the Red Sox breaking their their eighty six year drought um, in 2004 when they came back against the Yankees in the, in the playoffs and then beat the Cardinals in the World Series. Um, Schilling was also, he won several World Series. Uh, his postseason record, I think it's 11-2. and two. I don't have the stats at hand, but it's very, very good. Um, and so the, 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 the case for him is, okay, he was a good player, a very good pitcher for a very long time. But he was outstanding when the pressure was – he was at his best when the pressure was at at its greatest in the postseason. And he was one of the great kind of 
big game pictures in, in history. So when the money was on the line, when the, when the pressure was on, Schilling came through. And the evidence is pretty strong for that. Uh, There's one famous game, and you probably remember this, Frank, where he, he had a, a, was a, a, a ruptured Achilles tendon and had it surgically repaired, but only just barely and pitched the game anyway. It was- yeah, there's the bloody sock game. And people have said, the, the thing, one of the things, so we're, we're leaving aside the kind of, I'll get to the controversies around Schilling mm. himself. One of the aspects of Schilling, regardless of what you think of him as a player, is he's also an incredible self-promoter and bloviator. And so the so-called bloody sock game. So he had this injury, he had, a, he had ankle surgery, he was pitching while injured and, and blood seeped through his sock according to i think it it did happen but there's a lot but but he also made a great play of letting everybody know it happened because he's a great self-promoter in that sense he's a classic kind of hall of fame character he fit right in in the 19th century or early 20th century as one of these people with a gift for self-promotion um so yes he pitched in the bloody sock game he was a he was a big game picture and, and he did it repeatedly. Uh, I susp- I think, and I've, I've thought this before the controversy and I'll get to the controversy in a second, that he was a marginal case based simply on the numbers. You really have to give heavy weight to the postseason numbers and given the kind of emphasis on data analytics we've seen, that's another baseball revolution mm. of the past generation. I think he looks less good than he would, than he would have 40 years ago. I think his, uh, but because we realize, well, there's a small sample size for the postseason. And although we won a few postseason games, how important are those really, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think he's a marginal case strictly by the numbers, which then brings in the character clause you mentioned before. Since his retirement, Kurt Schilling has been a uh, rather controversial figure. So there are two aspects to his, to his, um, to his uh, infamy, if you will. The first is that he was involved in a business venture that failed. Now, a former athlete who's involved in a failed business venture, there's no news there. But he, it involved him taking loans from the, he set up a video game company. It was based in Rhode Island. I don't know all the details, so I might be getting some of this wrong. But he basically took out loans from the state of Rhode Island, defaulted on those. A lot of people lost their jobs, lost pensions. It was a pretty ugly case. And he, again, like Pete Rose, didn't express a whole lot of contrition about this. He walked away from the wreckage of all that, and he's achieved a certain level of fame or infamy, depending on your perspective, on social media and as a kind of media personality on right-wing media. He was on ESPN, the broadcaster, for a while. Um, doing baseball games, but they fired him um, for anti-trans um, tweets that he he made. He's made a number. Of, he's been a very fervent and outspoken defender of the f- President Trump. Uh, he once tweeted a meme advocating. It's a meme that'll be familiar to people from the if, if you've seen some of the discourse on the far right that has a. a Noose and a and a and it's and it advocated um, uh, lynching journalists, saying you know some assembly required with a journalist a noose in a tree. He tweeted that he shared that meme. He's never ever said he was sorry for any of this stuff. He's um, had made number of anti-Muslim comments as well. Yeah, yes, anti-Muslim comments, um, and most recently, and this was after last year's voting was completed, but in the on January seventh of this year, right after the attack on the Capitol, he issued a number of tweets 
advocate, you know, uh, expressing support for the, uh, the, the people who attacked the Capitol in, in no uncertain terms, even after the, the extent of the violence was known. And for many people, this put him, you know, this is, this is the last straw. A lot of writers were quite concerned that he might get in this year. A lot of writers who voted for him saying, okay, he's a jerk, but we're voting for him because based on what he did on the field, but I'd hate to see him get in now because of what we've seen. I think several, yeah, I think several writers tried to get, you know, withdraw their ballots after, you know, I think the ballots were submitted on the 1st of January. And, and I think after the 7th of January, I think several voters tried to recall their ballots, but were told they couldn't do that. So that's right. That's right. Now, now, and Schilling has read the writing on the wall. He knows it in light of his recent comments and the fact that he missed this year. He's not getting in next year, or it's highly unlikely. So he's asked to have his name withdrawn from the ballot, which is unprecedented. And he wants to wait until the Veterans Committee can decide because he claims they're the only ones who can judge him. And frankly, they may well let him in. I mean, I think mm. they're more likely to let him in than the writers are uh, in a few years' time. I, I will, I'll, I'll say two things about Schilling. I, I don't think you should get in. I actually think this is one where the character clause does apply. And it's, I, don't, I don't want this to be a partisan statement. I think advocating the overthrow of the United States government might be a violation of the character clause. Um, <laughs> even if he did it retrospectively, I think mm. we, we know what we know. I think that does matter. Um, and the other thing is Schilling sees himself as a real student of history and he is a real student of the history of the game. Mm. So, in fact, his Twitter handle is based on Lou Gehrig, the great New York Yankee. Uh, he uses, I think he's Gehrig38 is his, is his Twitter handle, although I'm not advocating you go follow him on Twitter. Uh, so he, he, really, he really appreciates the history of the game. Mm. I think he really, really, really wants to be in the Hall of Fame. The other thing that matters, and this is perhaps me being petty, is getting in the Hall of Fame is actually a real boon financially to the, player, the former players who were elected. Now, many of them, like Alex Rodriguez, don't need the money, but some do. And Schilling is somebody who will be able to monetize his status as a Hall of Famer. Your autograph is worth more. Your appearance fees are greater in ways that, frankly, I don't think he deserves. And I'm not sure he should be given that platform. Mm -hmm. And you're given a platform when you're elected because you get to appear at the Hall of Fame the following summer in Cooperstown and make a speech. Now, I don't think, I think given his reverence for the history of the game, I don't think he would actually abuse that platform although i don't know that for uh, i can't mm. know that but but i'm not sure he should be given that platform so i don't think Schilling deserves it his subsequent idiocy has kind of tainted my memory of the 2004 red sox retrospectively which i resent um <laughs> so i i don't think kurt Schilling yeah. belongs i don't know what do you think i i don't think he belongs either i mean i think his case to get in is is marginal I mean, one thing I think that, that the Schilling case reveals and the actually, I guess this would also be true for Pete Rose. The, the five year window when before you're eligible seems to factor in both of those cases. If if they had been able to be elected the year they retired, they both probably would have made it in. Um, yes, that's right. So I think that's an interesting sort of consequence of this this retirement window that, that's required. And I'm, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it just sort of shows how the effect that that has. Um, and I think you make a very good point about the, the, the financial value uh, for being uh, inducted. I, I think, uh, you know, 
his comments are do, you know, I don't want to hang out with him. And, and, you know, I think lots of other players don't want to hang out with him as a consequence. Um, who is not in the hall of fame, Frank, do you think should be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, this is where it gets to, uh, is it the hall of, you know, is it meant to be the, the, the greatest players of all time or the very good? So there are hmm. players for whom I have a great deal of affection. Um, yeah. And everybody, this goes back to one's childhood and where one, and what, which team one supports. So somebody like Dwight Evans, for example, hmm. was a great, great player or a very, very good player for the Boston Red Sox for a very long time. Would I like to see Dwight Evans get into the hall of fame? Sure. I'd love to see Dwight Evans in the hall of fame. Does he actually deserve to be in the hall of fame? I suspect not. And I suspect that if, you know, you're a Yankee fan, I suspect, hmm. you know, if we, if we talk to fans, of any of the other 30 plus teams, they would have their Dwight Evans figure yeah. and everybody else would say, no, come on. He was a good guy, but he's not that good. So but, uh, yeah. He's better than some of the people who are in the hall of fame. Yes. Yeah, yeah, than, that's right. Um, so, so yeah, it, the, 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 the standards are, are uh, you know, uh, in, entirely sort of historical. And so you can sort of always point to somebody and say, well, he's better than player X or Y's and therefore deserves to be in. Although that that's a, that becomes a problematic standard because when you apply that, you're 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 kind of um, institutionalizing the mistakes of the past. And then oh, oh, to be the, sure, right? Lowering. Yeah. The, so who who do you think should be in? That is. Oh, I have a, a a soft spot in my heart for Tommy John to be in the Hall right. of Fame. Well, there's uh, an argument that he should be because of Tommy John surgery. Well, you know, so he has 288 wins, which is just shy of the 300, which has sort of traditionally been a, a sort of benchmark for a sure entry um, into the Hall of Fame. And he missed a season and a half with, with this sort of revolutionary surgery that's named after him. Um, you know, uh, played on a couple of all-star teams, played on several pennant winners, um, you know, uh, Played 26 seasons, which for a while was the, the record for the number of seasons played, you know. Um, but, you know, and he's better than some of the people, many, a number of people who are in there. But but I think, as you point out, that's a problematic uh, rubric. Right. But if, and also, if he's got 288 wins over 26 seasons, mm. he's not winning. The, you know, he, he's a good picture for a long time. And we're back yes. to he, he's probably Dwight Evans like in that sense of somebody who's very good. For, for, for a long time. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a very distinguished career, but uh, I don't know. And, and well, let me ask you this. Are there too many Yankees in the Hall of Fame? On the grounds that you, winning teams, if you play for a championship team, that enhances your, your eligibility really with the voters. There's no doubt about yeah. that. That's, that's Schilling's whole case, for example. And given the importance of the Yankees as a franchise. I mean, they're the most important team in the history of baseball. It galls me to admit that, but it's true. Mm. In the in the country's largest media market, and, you know, we've talked about the importance of the media in this, but has that resulted, you know, you end up with Phil Rizzuto, for example, but there are probably, there are more Yankees in the Hall of Fame than any other team. Do you think there are too many? Uh, I think some of them benefited from being around some very, some extraordinary players, um, you know, and being around extraordinary players tends to make, you know, your own record look better. So Rizzuto is a good case. 
uh, Tony Lazari, who was a, a player from the, the 20s uh, and, and early 30s, is sort of in a similar sort of situation where he was a good player on an extraordinary team. Um, you know, Whitey Ford, who we mentioned earlier as, as being a problematic um, inductee because of his later admissions to, to various kinds of, of, of rule bending. Um, if you were to put him on the, I don't know, put him on the, the Kansas City A's or something at the same time, he would have been a thoroughly mediocre pitcher, I think. Um, you know, and, 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 uh, maybe, but he's the best pitcher on the best team in baseball, arguably the best team in the history of the best team in baseball. So I, I, I I've got no problem with Whitey Ford. With Whitey Ford. Okay. Um, Maybe. Um, it, it is very hard because, I mean, one of the things about baseball is, is from the very beginning, baseball has, has been, you know, obsessed with its own past. Uh, and we're, and we're back to Cooperstown. And obsessed with statistics. And, and statistics have played a, a major role in baseball and quantifying how good a player is in a way that uh, most other sports don't to the same degree. And, and the comparison of players from very different time periods is something that baseball fans do a great deal um, that you can't do, for instance, if you're talking about, say, basketball, where, you know, if you were to compare numbers from players today and numbers from players 50 years ago, they're, they're you know, it's, it's hard to put those alongside one another. The game has, has changed too much. Um, you know, I, I was looking at some some newspapers from the 18, uh, 1898 yesterday, because that's the kind of thing I do in my free time. And, you know, I found right, right next to a, an article about the, the outbreak of the Spanish-American War with the baseball box scores. What? You know, and, and the sort of the juxtaposition of those two things struck me as, as quite interesting that somebody might care about the United States going to war and about how Philadelphia had done uh, the previous night and what their numbers were. Um, the other sport that has a similar statistical record and indeed a longer history, statistical record uh, and, uh, and for which there are similar debates is cricket. Yeah. And the history of cricket and baseball in America is, uh, is an interesting one. They, 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 uh, but, but there, there, is a, there, there are some parallels outside of the United States in terms of that, that, that sporting tradition as well. Now, for the non-baseball fans who've managed to listen this far in this podcast, <laughs> what um, are you? What are you still well, doing? <laughs> no, but I think Frank, what do you think are the parallels between these debates about who should be in the Hall of Fame and other debates that are happening in American society about how we in the present interpret historical figures? Oh, I think it's you know it, it it's who gets on money. So we're back to. Harriet Tubman and Andrew Jackson, and we talked about that last week. I think mm. um, it's it, it, there are very interesting parallels with a lot of the debates about um, monuments, who deserves monuments, who deserves uh, to have buildings or schools named after them. There was a story in, in the last week since our last episode about renaming schools in in San Francisco, and and the the, the names in question now are people like Lincoln and Washington and Jefferson. Um, you know, not Robert E. Lee. And, and so I think there are some parallels there about applying 
standards of the present to the past and what you do about that. Um, I, I think this is a, this is a perhaps trivial version of of that discussion, but I think the the underlying themes of the discussion are very very similar. It's who we choose to honor and how we choose to honor people in the past. Um, I think all these questions about inclusion. I mean, one of the things we mentioned several weeks ago before Christmas was the fact that the um, Major League Baseball and consequently the Hall of Fame is, has reclassified the, the Negro Leagues as, as major leagues, which will change the, the statistical record. I think these questions about who's in and who's out uh, when it comes to thinking about the past are, all, are, are uh, echoed in this discussion. What about what about you, David? No, you I, think? I think I think that's you know precisely right, and 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 oddly, I feel sometimes that my positions, and I'm not. I guess I'm not internally consistent here, but uh, my positions on on public monuments and and the place of historical figures on public monuments, whether that's school names or what have you, I actually have a different position on that than I do with with the Baseball Hall of Fame in, in an odd way. Um, I'm all for taking down Confederate monuments, but I'm, I'm, I'm also okay with keeping generally awful people in the Hall of Fame, and I'm, I'm still trying to reconcile those the different uh, interpretations there. Although it's clearly very similar uh, and connected issues. Yeah, I'm, although I think there is an important distinction to be made, David, which is a statue outside a courthouse. And we we talked about this yeah. several times over the over the life of this podcast is an expression about the power of the state and how that power will be deployed. And it's sending a message to people in the present. Frankly, whether Cap Anson has a plaque in a museum in Cooperstown, New York, that most people are going to ignore is not the same thing. It's not the same. Same thing. Yeah, no, I think you're right. <laughs> I, th I think that's right. Uh, Camp Anson was definitely a problematic figure, to put it mildly. I mean, I really... Uh, virulent racist along with with lots of but, other people but, but it doesn't but, matter the people who go to the hall of fame yeah uh because you know even if it is a hall of fame as you point out most of these figures are just names on a wall uh hmm. all right well i will have to think more about this and see if i can reconcile the internal uh, contradictions in my own logic well, i'm sure our listeners can't wait for our now yeah. annual hall of fame, fame. episode. David. well <laughs> you know i think it no, I mean, I, when i was a kid uh you know in middle school whatever you know baseball and thinking about the history of baseball was my life and and uh you know i think uh, much of my interest in, in 19th century america actually grew out of my interest in baseball um so yeah, i mean uh, it is it is worth noting uh that uh, among those who who died in the past year 10 hall of famers died in the past year and mm. just sorry the fact that i've used that phrase that phrase hall of famer is one of the reasons i think it should be denied to kurt schilling because it's a particular status and yeah. carries a certain cultural I'm, I'm contradicting what i just said about it not mattering it carries a certain cultural weight or has a certain mm. cachet to it so we've lost 10 hall of famers in the past year some great great players like bob gibson whitey ford uh, but henry aaron died a, a week or 10 days ago mm. um and Henry Aaron, there are Hall of Famers and then there are people who are, you know, in the inner circle, as it were. Henry Aaron's probably on the list of the top five people who ever played the game and most important people who ever played the game. Oh, definitely. And, and, and a real, truly, truly great player was the home run king, broke Babe Ruth's 
record in 1974, having received huge amounts of, of um, racist mail and death threats while he was doing it. Um, a truly great player, uh, by all accounts, a very nice person in the way, I mean, he certainly passes the character clause without a problem. Yeah, no, he did actually lots of civil rights work and social That's justice right. work in, in his retirement. Um, seems to have been a, a thoroughly decent uh, human being uh, throughout his life um, and, and, and faced an enormous amount of hostility and, and, and threats of violence with, with, with great dignity. Uh, I have a Henry Aaron story to end on. Oh, okay. Go, go, please. Well, in 1994, I sent him a card to congratulate him on the 20th anniversary of him breaking Babe Ruth's record. And he sent me a thank you note. Wow. I think that speaks <laughs> a lot to, okay. And he didn't charge you $25. No, no, no. Pete Rose would have done because Pete no, Rose would have I mean, definitely charged you for that. That's right. I was very surprised. In fact, I've got to get back into my office. I was thinking about that the other day after he died, uh, because I'm sure I've got the letter in, in, in my filing cabinet in my office, so I, I should find that. But uh, yeah, so so um, I assume he must have done that thousands and thousands of times. Right. But anyway, well, rest so, in peace, Henry Aaron, uh, yeah. a great hero. Time for last drops, Frank. What you got? I've got I've got two related things, David, which is there are two things that appeared recently uh, in the past few days uh, that reflected on his, history and historiography. And I want to mention them, them very briefly. Uh, the first is an essay that appeared in The New Republic written by written by William Hoagland called Against the Consensus Approach to History. And this is a long essay that got a lot of attraction among on history, social media and history related social media. I'm sure you saw some of this. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and Hoagland wrote this long essay, which is a critique of the so-called consensus approach to history. We almost did the ep this episode on it, um, but we opted for the Hall of Fame instead to do something more fun. And, and it's a long essay. It's a complicated essay. It's a provocative essay. I don't want to get into too much detail on it, but except to say uh, it's striking to me that the New Republic, a kind of major uh, and important periodical in the United States published this lengthy essay on historiography. There's a lot of, again, forgive the term, inside baseball in this, mm. uh, and, I'm, and I'm surprised. It's an essay that, that, that bears some consideration and we might return to it in a future episode, but I call your attention to that. And just, it's a remarkable and unusual move, I think, by a, by a periodical in the United States, even a serious one, to publish an essay of this length that's basically on historiography. At the same time, over the weekend, Alexis Coe, who we've discussed in the past, she's a biographer of George Washington, among many other things. Alexis wrote a very good blog post, I thought, on um, the response to Je um, Jessica Sarah Philippi's uh, essay that we discussed a couple of months ago. Jessica Sarah Philippi wrote this, uh, published this paper, she on, on Alexander Hamilton and slavery. Uh, which we discussed on an earlier episode. And she works at the Schuyler House Museum in New York. And uh, Sarah Philippi, you know, did a very, very good job of demonstrating that Alexander Hamilton was much more closely implicated and involved in slavery and, and the slave trade and uh, than had previously been supposed. Indeed, implicit in this was a challenge to Ron Chernow's interpretation of Alexander Hamilton uh, as, as a kind of abolitionist. And um, what Alexis Coe, wrote about in her blog post was she kind of uh, examined this and it's a very good blog post. She um, looked at Chernow's response to Sarah Philippi's work because Chernow who often 
doesn't respond to other people, uh, chose to respond to this. And Alexis offers some really interesting uh, insights into, into what she thinks is at work here. Hmm. And it, so this too is historiographical, but looking at the way, essentially Ron Chernow is punching down at this younger scholar who seems to have challenged his interpretation of um, the, the greatness of Alexander Hamilton. It, it's a blog post that definitely um, deserves your time and attention. So both of these are interesting interventions. We can link to them on, on, the, uh, on the show page, but I, I recommend both of them to you. And they came out, as I said, at approximately the same time, and both of them are uh, meditations on, on historiography. What about you, David? What's yours? Uh, well, uh, February in the United States is, is Black History Month. Um, we talked about the, the different Black History Months uh, in the U.S. and the U.K., uh, been actually in an early episode of the podcast. But one of the things that is debuting uh, in Black History Month is a new podcast uh, by a historian Kadada Williams, who is at Wayne State. It's called Seizing Freedom. It's about uh, emancipation during the Civil War. Uh, and I'm very excited for that. She's an, she's an excellent scholar, and I'm looking forward to, to seeing what she does with this, this medium uh, to, to, speak to speak to the public about emancipation. So I'm excited about seizing freedom. Excellent. Good. Great. Till next week, Frank. Cheers, Cheers David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. 